This morning's reading is taken from Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, starting at verse 7, and it's page 1004 in the Pew Bibles. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so those with diseases were pushing forwards to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, This is our third week in Mark's Gospel. If you're visiting with us, let me tell you what we're attempting to do here at Windsor on Sunday mornings. We're uh, attempting or trying to revisit and rediscover the 70-plus incidents uh, that are recorded in the 16 chapters of Mark's Gospel in seven weeks. Now, there's two other things you need to know. One, we're covering lots and we're leaving lots uncovered. And secondly, it's going to take longer than seven weeks. Uh, my revised estimate now stands at 12, okay? But what is our intention? Well, our purpose is based on the low-card exchange principle, a principle from forensic science that says that every contact leaves a trace. And so via 
our 70 plus contacts with the stories of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the example of Jesus, we hope to be left with more than a trace of Jesus on us, in us, and with us. So if you have your Bible, please do turn again to Mark chapter 3. I think it was page 1004 in the Pew Bibles. But if you had a copy of the Bible in front of you, it would be really helpful. Incident number 15 occurs at a lake. And Mark tells us that Jesus withdrew to be there with his disciples. And again, we're reminded of this reoccurring pattern that is written all over Mark's gospel. That Jesus would engage with people and then he would withdraw to a quiet and an isolated place and then he would re-engage once more. And I know we've highlighted this rhythm in recent weeks, but please don't miss its value and its importance. We all engage with people on a day-to-day basis, but please... As you engage, do not neglect the need to retreat, to withdraw, to be alone in order to resource your inner self. Problem on this occasion for Jesus and his disciples was that although the desire to get offside and to recharge the batteries was there, they just couldn't do it. Because Mark says a huge crowd followed him. Complete nightmare. I don't know if you ever have that experience that you, would lo- you long for space, but you seldom get it. You'd love to withdraw, but it seems that there's always someone looking for you. Finding solitude was never an easy thing for Jesus, and I'll guarantee you it is not an easy thing for any one of us. People from all over the region were there. In fact, so many had turned up that Jesus gets his disciples to arrange for a small boat to be at hand, just in case he needs to jump on board in order to avoid being trampled or crushed. And the sheer numbers of people must have been intimidating. But what is really disturbing about this crowd is that it includes evil spirits. And what's fascinating is that they know the exact identity of Jesus. Now, most people had no clue who they were dealing with. Most people who were there that day had absolutely no clue who they were dealing with. But based on his reputation, according to verse 8, and the fact that here was an intriguing man who heals diseases, then crowds of people just followed him out of curiosity, out of interest. The demonic, on the other hand, knew exactly who they were dealing with. And so they fell down before him. And I have no clue what that looked like. But they fell down before him. And they cried out, You are the Son of God. And up to now, as we have journeyed through Mark's Gospel, we have built up this profile of Jesus. And that's just based on two and a bit chapters. Well, now we can add this latest description, Son of God. And he was... And he is. I mean, the evil spirits were right. Here was free publicity. But for some reason, Jesus immediately issued strict instructions that they were not to reveal his uniqueness. Now, why was that? Their declaration was 100% accurate. They were fooling no one. They were deceiving nobody. 
And yet Jesus silences them. Why? Well, one possible reason for this reaction was Jesus' unwillingness to allow evil spirits to be the ones who would verify his identity and his deity. Evil spirits should only submit to him, not validate him. And it seems that if anyone was going to clarify who Jesus was, it would be Jesus himself. What people heard from his lips, what people seen of his life would provide a witness rather than a sudden outburst from the dark side. Jesus is the Son of God, but whatever you do, don't tell anyone. Or at least, don't tell anyone just yet. Jesus then moves from a lake to a mountain where he makes a highly significant decision. He appoints 12 apostles. Now in Luke's incident, uh, or record of this incident, we discover that before Jesus made that decision, he spent the whole night praying to God. And you know, I have absolutely no doubt that in a group of people this size, there will be some here this morning And you're facing some major decisions. Major decisions and choices that preoccupy your thinking. In fact, you're probably not really listening to me now. Because there's stuff weighing heavily on your mind. Decisions, choices that have relatively serious consequences to do with your job, to do with your family, to do with your health. To do with your relationships. And therefore this morning what you need to know is the mind of God. Not only do you need to know the mind of God, but I reckon that many of you long to know the mind of God concerning that decision that you're currently struggling with. And once again, Jesus provides us with an incredible example to follow. Because whatever you do, do not rush your decision. Make sure you pray it through. Seek solitude. Consult your Heavenly Father because it was out of a quiet place of communion. It was out of a quiet place of spending time with his Father that Jesus was ready and able to appoint the twelve from a much larger group according to God's word. And so whatever decision it is that you face this morning or this week, Don't make it in your own strength. Seek solitude with God. Back to uh, verse 13, because Mark tells us that Jesus called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And you know, contained within that one sentence is an amazing picture of the process of salvation. God calls, people respond hint of God's sovereignty, human responsibility, but we're not going to go there now. Take a look then at the 12 names. Do you know some of them stand out? Peter, John, Judas. But what do you know of disciple number 9? James, son of Alphaeus. Now this is not the same James as the one that's number whatever 2. Son of Zebedee. This is a different James. What do you know of him? Well, there's actually nothing to know. 
The distinguishing feature of this James is his obscurity. James, the son of Zebedee, is described as James the Great. This James, the son of Alphaeus, is often referred to as James the Less. And yet, his name is preserved alongside others whom Jesus called to him following a night of prayer. Do you know, history and heaven alone are James's witnesses. And you may feel less than when you compare yourself to others. But God's called you. And if your name was on a list, you would probably think, you know something? There's nothing really to know about me. Compared to so many other people on a list like that. And yet, your name, because God has called you and you have come, will echo in eternity. And what you do may go unnoticed, but heaven sees. And heaven remembers, even if nobody else does. The journey continues. Jesus and his disciples are now hungry. And so having left the mountain, they head for a house to enjoy a meal together. Problem is, and it's a reoccurring problem, Jesus can go nowhere. Jesus can be nowhere for very long before a crowd shows up. And it happens again here in verse 20. And as a result, neither Jesus nor his disciples even get a chance to eat together. And at this point, his family step in. Enough is enough, Jesus. Recent events have clearly started to worry them. But now their boy, now remember, Jesus was a son. Jesus was a brother. Well, now their boy isn't even eating regularly. They're convinced about that. And so they say, he's out of his mind, is how verse 21 reads. And so his family set out to speak to him personally. Do you know, it seems that right throughout Jesus' life, most people, including his family, just didn't get it. They just didn't get him. They couldn't wrap their heads around what he was doing. Even as a 12-year-old, Jesus would tell his family that he had to be about his father's business, but Luke records they didn't understand what he was saying to them. In fact, it was only after his resurrection that much of what Jesus had said and taught began to make sense and fall into place. But for now, his family are worried. They're deeply worried. From a human perspective, this boy, their son, their brother was heading for a crash and burn. He's packed in a decent profession as a carpenter. His schedule is disorganized. His routine is all over the place. And now he's not even eaten properly. And so it says in verse 21 that his family go to take charge of him. And families are great, aren't they? Yes, they are. (laughs) You know, they're there to care. They're there to be concerned. They're there to sound a warning about your lifestyle choices and practices. As I was reflecting on this, it got me thinking, and I hope I'm not pushing this too far or taking it too far. But I just wonder if there's anybody here this morning who, because of busyness, Because of a lack of routine, a crammed schedule, constant activity, maybe even irregular eating patterns, you're causing your family real concerns. And you may not be losing it, you may not be going out of your mind, but you might just need to listen. And you maybe need to begin explaining where it's at with those who are closest to you. You at least owe them 
that. Well, back to the text. The teachers of the law, they aren't quite so sympathetic. They're not saying he's out of his mind. They actually say he's possessed. And not only are they convinced he's possessed, but it's by the power of Beelzebub that he's doing what he's doing. That's a strong accusation. And so Jesus, in a way that only Jesus really could, he clearly explains to them how totally illogical and ludicrous their accusation is. And so Jesus uses parables, and we'll come back to that in a moment, in verses 23 to 28 to make his point that, listen, if I am possessed by evil, why am I seeking to cast out evil from others? It just doesn't make any sense. The fact is, or the fact was, Jesus was not demon-possessed. He was not in league with Satan, but what Jesus was doing was engaging or waging war against the forces of darkness. But at the end of this little bit, we come to a couple of tricky verses. Verses 28 and 29. What is the unforgivable sin? There's been a lot of discussion, a lot of confusion on this one. But let me stick with the context here and not head off on some unhelpful tangent. Lives have been changed, demons cast out, miracles have taken place in full view for everyone to see. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have a problem on their hands. They can't deny what has happened. For example, a paralytic has met Jesus, taken up his mat and walked home. That's convincing. So they can't deny what has been going on. And so what they are forced to do is question his identity and question his anointing. Remember, whenever Jesus was baptized by John in chapter 1 of Mark, the Father declared, this is my beloved Son. Well, the Pharisees weren't going to accept that. You're not the Son of God. The evil spirits know it, but we're not accepting it. And you'll also recall that at the same time the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. Well, again, the Pharisees weren't buying this. In fact, they were saying, Jesus, you don't have the Holy Spirit, but what you do have is an evil spirit. Look at verse 30. It's exactly what they said to him. And back to our profile of Jesus, the Pharisees refused or they failed to recognize the majority of this. And it's that entrenched rejection of Jesus, that permanent denial of who he was, plus the audacity to accredit Satan with the work of God that was unforgivable. And for us today, the context is different. Jesus is not physically here. Accusing Jesus of having an evil spirit is not a risk we face. But a rejection of who he was and who he is and who he claimed to be is still a live issue for all of humanity. As I understand it, the one unforgivable sin is reaching the end of life and never having asked for forgiveness. The unforgivable sin that each human being can commit is never asking for forgiveness. The family of Jesus arrive. Can't get into the house. And so they send someone in to tell Jesus that his mum and his brothers are here. And what Jesus says next seems completely out of order. And it must have convinced those who were listening to him that, do you know something, maybe, maybe this guy is out of his mind. 
Because Jesus says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? And surely someone must have said to them, look Jesus, that's them standing outside. That's your mum Mary. What do you mean who's your mother? But Jesus sees this as an ideal opportunity to introduce a new concept of family. Of course Jesus knew who his family were. The physical, biological family of Jesus did matter to him. One of the most moving incidents in the life of Jesus occurs as he's hanging down on a cross. And as his heart breaks, he looks down and he sees his mum. And he looks to one of his other disciples and he just says, Please, will you take care of her once I'm gone? The family of Jesus mattered to him. Jesus wasn't dismissive of his family, but here in this defining moment, he begins to drip feed the concept of a new kind of family, a spiritual family made up of people who do the will of God. Verse 35 says, Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. And there's the admission criteria. Doing the will of God. It's all about belief in God, obedience to God, and in many ways, and certainly in eternal terms, membership of that particular family is even more important than membership of any earthly family, even though that may be hard for us to stomach. And even that picture of family is crucial to grasp because Christianity is about relationship, it's about intimacy. Christianity is not about joining some club, some organization. It's about becoming spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers of Jesus. Now in the next incident, and Sarah didn't read this for us and wasn't asked to read this for us. But in the next incident, we're into Mark 4. And Jesus is by a lake. And another crowd are there. And this time there are so many of them that Jesus has to get into a boat to create some kind of a floating pulpit from where he speaks. And Mark tells us again of a particular method that Jesus would use whenever he came to speak. He taught them by parables. Now in Mark's gospel there are eight of these things. Overall, there are 30 plus. Some would even suggest there are 57 parables of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Over one third of Matthew, Mark and Luke contain parables. But what exactly are they? Well, I'm sure you've heard many different definitions. E.g., a parable is a simple earthly story with a profound heavenly meaning. My favorite definition is this. It's a mini drama in picture language. But why did Jesus use these things well a key aspect of this is the recognition that people love stories good stories interesting stories intriguing stories and that's exactly what these were stories connect with people they draw you in and if the storyteller is good then you will hang on every word waiting to see where the storyteller is going to take you For crowds of people 2,000 years ago, they had the privilege of listening to one of the greatest storytellers who ever lived, and they hung on his every word. And so stories communicate. And via these stories, Jesus was able to help human minds grab hold of heaven's mysteries, heaven's secrets, mainly concerning the kingdom of God. And the stories that Jesus told, they were accessible to people. Here in this first 
parable, the central character is a farmer and he's sowing seed. And people could immediately relate to that. They were drawn in. They were immediately brought on board right from the word go. But although people very quickly recognized the plot lines that Jesus would often use, the brilliant thing that Jesus did was that he often injected simple but profound twists to shatter their illusions and cause them to think or rethink. Jesus used these things to introduce new ideas and new thoughts. He told these stories to provoke discussion, to get people to be left with questions. And I'm not going to look at the specifics of this parable, the parable of the sower, for a couple of reasons. One, time, and two, during the summer, I think we're going to do a Sunday evening series looking at about eight of these parables, this one included. But I just want to stick to the concept of parables this morning. Because Mark 4, verses 3 to 8, records the parable. But then I want you to notice what happens. The majority of the crowd leave. It's only the twelve. It's only a few others that get to hang around to hear the explanation of that story. And everybody else is left to wander back home, probably thinking to themselves, Hey, listen, that was a nice story about seed sowing. There was some good, but not new tips on how to be careful where you throw the stuff. But why did Jesus actually tell us that story? We have absolutely no clue. And they were left to just walk back home with that ringing in their heads. Why did Jesus do that? And that is actually a very crucial thing to discover. Because you see, parables were not for everybody. Or at least, not everybody was intended to get them. And in some ways that seems bizarre. And to reinforce that idea, just take a look at verse 11. Where Jesus says, listen, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Why, Jesus? And then in verses 14 to 20, he explains the parable to a select few. See, it seems when it comes to parables, some will get them, some won't. And you just need to live with that reality. And those words in verse 11 aren't actually new words. Jesus didn't make them up. He was just quoting the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 6, verse 9. But that helps us understand why certain people get parables, but many don't. Because Isaiah had encountered these callous hard hearts during his ministry. People who weren't prepared or weren't willing to listen. People who rejected the message of truth despite its truth. And Jesus realistically knew, do you know something? Things don't change. Things don't change. Those who have open teachable hearts and minds, well they will get this stuff. But those who shut their minds down, who harden their hearts, they just won't get it and that seems to be one of the reasons why Jesus then says he who has ears he who's willing to listen will hear and either you and this this is not easy teaching either you and the people that we are surrounded by want to listen to Jesus or they don't either you want to grasp and wrestle with and process the teaching of Jesus Or you don't. If you have an ear for this stuff, 
for heaven's mysteries, for the kingdom of God, then tune in. Jesus has got lots to say to you via parables. But if you don't have that heart, if you're unwilling to listen, if the ears are blocked and the mind is closed, then you will remain confused and left to exist in the dark. Where are we this morning? In our final incident, Jesus comes out with four distinct sayings. Doesn't expand on them, just says them. They almost come across as riddles, little mini riddles. I'm only going to comment on one of them, the first one. Do you bring a lamp, put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? And I know that that's been interpreted in different ways, and we tend to immediately think of our need to shine as Christians, to avoid secrecy, to make our commitment known to the world around us. But in this context, I think the focus is Jesus, who is the light of the world and needs to be seen as such. Last night from 8.30 to 9.30, we had Earth R. When all around the world, people were encouraged to extinguish light for 60 minutes. And I know many of you did it, and many of you told me to do it, which I did for those who are interested. And I think it was a great idea, but you know, it struck me as I was preparing for this, that in some ways what happened last night is a perfect example or a perfect picture of what many are trying to do to Jesus in our world today. They want to extinguish him. Or at the very least, they want to conceal him under a bowl or under a bed. But although people and this world will try to smother his brilliance, and dim his brightness and conceal his radiance, the light of the world remains on its stand, clearly visible for all to see. The question is, what do we see? Who do we see? As we look around, what fills our lines of vision? Who fills our lines of vision? Do we have a fresh understanding and a clear view of who Jesus is. For those of you who like to take this away and process it, here's a list of questions. Again, if you want to, if you want to engage with this, email me. I'll email them back or ask me and I'll give you a copy. How often have you withdrawn this week to be alone? What significant decision do you currently face? How will you handle it? What is your daily schedule like at the moment? Are your family concerned? And if so, what's your response? Have you ever asked for God's forgiveness? What does doing God's will mean for you? What's your favourite parable? Why? And why does the world seem intent on extinguishing the light of the world?